Book Thirteen, Part Three B of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book Thirteen, A.D. Fifty-four to Fifty-eight, Part Three B. Military actions in the east. About the same time, Octavius Sagida, a tribune of the people, who was enamoured to frenzy of Pontia, a married woman, bribed her by most costly presents into an intrigue, and then into abandoning her husband. He had offered her marriage and had won her consent. But as soon as she was free, she devised delays, pretending that her father's wishes were against it and having secured the prospect of a richer husband, she repudiated her promises. Octavius, on the other hand, now remonstrated, now threatened, his good name, he protested, was lost, his means exhausted, and as for his life, which was all that was left to him, he surrendered it to her mercy. When she spurned him, he asked the solace of one night, with which to soothe his passion, that he might set bounds to it for the future. A night was fixed, and Pancha entrusted the charge of her chamber to a female slave acquainted with her secret. Octavius, attended by one freed man, entered with a dagger concealed under his dress. Then, as usual in lovers' quarrels, there were tidings, entreaties, reproaches, excuses, and some period of the darkness was given up to passion. Then, when seemingly about to go, and she was fearing nothing, he stabbed her with the steel and having wounded and scared away the slave-girl who was hurrying to her, rushed out of the chamber. Next day the murder was notorious, and there was no question as to the murderer, for it was proved that he had passed some time with her. The freedman, however, declared the deed was his, that he had, in fact, avenged his patron's wrongs. He had made some impression by the nobleness of his example, when the slave-girl recovered and revealed the truth. Octavius, when he ceased to be tribune, was prosecuted before the consuls by the father of the murdered woman, and was condemned by the sentence of the Senate under the law concerning assassins. A profligacy equally notorious in that same year proved the beginning of the great evils to the state. There was at Rome one Sabina Popea. Her father was Titus Olius, but she had assumed the name of her maternal grandfather, Popeius Sabinus, a man of illustrious memory and preeminently distinguished by the honours of a consulship and a triumph. As for Olius, before he attained promotion, the friendship of Shajanus was his ruin. This Popea had everything but a right mind. Her mother, who surpassed in personal attractions all the ladies of her day, had bequeathed alike her fame and beauty. Her fortune adequately corresponded to the nobility of her descent. Her conversation was charming and her wit anything but dull. She professed virtue, while she practised laxity. Seldom did she appear in public, and it was always with her face partly veiled, either to disappoint men's gaze or to set off her beauty. Her character she never spared, making no distinction between a husband and a paramour, while she was never a slave to her own passion or that of her lover. Wherever there was a prospect of advantage, there she transferred her favours. And so, while she was living as the wife of Rufius Crispinus, a Roman knight, by whom she had a son, she was attracted by the youth and fashionable elegance of Otho, and by the fact, too, that he was reputed to have Nero's most ardent friendship. Without any delay, the intrigue was followed by marriage. Otho now began to praise his wife's beauty and accomplishments to the emperor, 
either from a lover's thoughtlessness or to inflame Nero's passion, in the hope of adding to his own influence by the further tie which would arise out of the possession of the same woman. Often, as he rose from the emperor's table, he was heard repeatedly to say that he was going to her, to the high birth and beauty which had fallen to his lot, to that which all men pray for, the joy of the fortunate. These and like incitements allowed, but of brief delay. Once having gained admission, Popea won, by her way of artful blandishments, pretending that she could not resist her passion, and that she was captivated by Nero's person. Soon, as the emperor's love grew ardent, she would change and be supercilious, and if she were detained more than one or two nights, would say again and again that she was a married woman, and could not give up her husband, attached, as she was, to Otho by a manner of life, which no one equalled. His ideas and his style were grand, at his house everything worthy of the highest fortune was ever before her eyes. Nero, on the contrary, with his slave-girl mistress, tied down by his attachment to Acti, had derived nothing from his slavish associations but what was low and degrading. Otho was now cut off from Nero's usual familiar intercourse, and then even from interviews and from the royal suite, and at last was appointed governor of the province of Lusitania, that he might not be the emperor's rival at Rome. There he lived up to the time of the civil wars, not in the fashion of his disgraceful past, but uprightly and virtuously, a pleasure-loving man when idle, and self-restrained when in power. Hitherto Nero had sought a veil for his abominations and wickedness. He was particularly suspicious of Cornelius Sulla, whose apathetic temper he interpreted as really the reverse, inferring that he was, in fact, an artful dissembler. Graptus, one of the emperor's freedmen, whose age and experience had made him thoroughly acquainted with the imperial household from the time of Tiberius, quickened these apprehensions by the following falsehood. The Mulvian Bridge was then a famous haunt of the knightly profligacy, and Nero used to go there that he might take his pleasures more freely outside the city. So Graptus, taking advantage of an idle panic into which the royal attendants had chanced to have been thrown, on their return by one of those youthful frolics, which were then everywhere practised, invented a story that a treacherous attack had been planned on the emperor, should he go back by the Flaminian road, and that through the favour of destiny he had escaped it, as he went home by a different way to Sallust's gardens. Sulla, he said, was the author of this plot. Not one, however, of Sulla's slaves or clients was recognised, and his character, despicable as it was, and incapable of a daring act, was utterly at variance with the charge. Still, just as if he had been found guilty, he was ordered to leave his country, and confined himself within the walls of Massilia. During the same councilship a hearing was given to two conflicting deputations from Puteoli, sent to the Senate by the town council and by the populace. The first spoke bitterly of the violence of the multitude, the second of the rapacity of the magistrates and of all the chief citizens, that the disturbance, which had gone as far as stoning and threats of fire, might not lead on to bloodshed and armed fighting, Caius Cassius was appointed to apply some remedy. As they would not endure his rigour, the charge of the affair was, at his own request, transferred to the brothers Scribonia, to whom was given a praetorian cohort, the terror of which, coupled with the execution of a few persons, restored peace to the townspeople. I should not mention a very trivial decree of the Senate, which allowed the city of Syracuse to exceed the prescribed number in their gladiatorial shows, 
had not Pacius Thrasius spoken against it and furnished his traducers with a ground for censuring his motion. Why, it was asked, if he thought that the public welfare required freedom of speech in the Senate, did he pursue such trifling abuses? Why should he not speak for or against peace and war, or on the taxes and laws and other matters involving Roman interests? The senators, as often as they received the privilege of stating an opinion, were at liberty to say what they pleased, and to claim that it should be put to the vote. Was it the only worthy object of reform to provide that the Syracusans should not give shows on a larger scale? Were all other matters in every department of the empire as admirable as if Thracia and not Nero had the direction of them? But, if the highest affairs were passed by and ignored, how much more ought there to be no meddling with things wholly insignificant? Thracia, in reply, when his friends asked an explanation, said that it was not in ignorance of Rome's actual condition that he sought to correct such decrees, but that he was giving what was due to the honour of the senators, in making it evident that those who attended even to the merest trifles would not disguise their responsibility for important affairs. That same year, repeated demands on the part of the people, who denounced the excessive greed of the revenue collectors, made Nero doubt whether he should not order the repeal of all indirect taxes, and so confer a most splendid boon on the human race. But this sudden impulse was checked by the senators, who, having first heartily praised the grandeur of his conception, pointed out that the dissolution of the empire must ensue if the revenues which supported the state were to be diminished for as soon as the customs were swept away, there would follow a demand for the abolition of the direct taxes. Many companies for the collection of the indirect taxes had been formed by consuls and tribunes, when the freedom of the Roman people was still in its vigour, and arrangements were subsequently made to ensure an exact correspondence between the amount of income and the necessary disbursements. Certainly some restraint, they admitted, must be put on the cupidity of the revenue collectors, that they might not, by new oppressions, bring into odium what for so many years had been endured without a complaint. Accordingly, the emperor issued an edict that the regulations about every branch of the public service, which had hitherto been kept secret, should be published, that claims which had been dropped should not be revived after a year, that the praetor at Rome, the propraetor or proconsul in the provinces, should give judicial precedence to all cases against the collectors, that the soldiers should retain their immunities except when they traded for profit, with other very equitable arrangements, which for a short time were maintained, and were subsequently disregarded. However, the repeal of the two per cent and two and a half per cent tax remains in force, as well as that of others bearing names invented by the collectors to cover their illegal exactions. In our transmarine provinces the conveyance of corn was rendered less costly, and it was decided that merchant ships should not be assessed with their owner's property, and that no tax should be paid on them. Two men, under prosecution from Africa, in which province they had held proconsular authority, Sipulcius Camerinus and Pomponius Silvanus, were acquitted by the emperor. Camerinus had against him few private persons who charged him with cruelty rather than with extortion. Silvanus was beset by a host of accusers who demanded time for summoning their witnesses, while the defendant insisted on being at once put on his defence. And he was successful, through his wealth, his childlessness, and his old age, 
which he prolonged beyond the life of those by whose corrupt influence he had escaped. Up to this time everything had been quiet in Germany, from the temper of the generals, who, now that triumphal decorations had been vulgarized, hoped for greater glory by the maintenance of peace. Paulinus Pompeius and Lucius Vetus were then in command of the army. Still, to avoid keeping the soldiers in idleness, the first completed the embankment begun sixty-three years before by Drusus to confine the waters of the Rhine, while Vestus prepared to connect the Moselle and the Arar by a canal, so that troops crossing the sea and then conveyed on the Rhone and Arar might sail by this canal into the Moselle and the Rhine, and thence to the ocean. Thus the difficulties of the route being removed, there would be communication for ships between the shores of the west and of the north. Aelius Gracilis, the governor of Belgica, discouraged the work by seeking to deter Vetus from bringing his legions into another man's province, and so drawing to himself the attachment of Gaul. This result, he repeatedly said, would excite the fears of the emperor, an assertion by which meritorious undertakings are often hindered. Meantime, from the continued inaction of our armies, a rumour prevailed that the commanders had been deprived of the right of leading them against the enemy. Thereupon the Frisi moved up their youth to the forests and swamps, and their non-fighting population, over the lakes, to the river-banks, and established themselves in unoccupied lands, reserved for the use of our soldiers, under the leadership of Veritas and Malarix, the kings of the tribe, as far as the Germans are under kings. Already they had settled themselves in houses, and had sown the fields, and were cultivating the soil as if it had been their ancestors, when Dubius Avitus, who had succeeded Paulinus in the province, by threatening them with a Roman attack if they did not retire into their old country, or obtain a new territory from the emperor, constrained Veritus and Malarix to become suppliants. They went to Rome, and while they waited for Nero, who was intent on other engagements, among the sights shown to the barbarians they were admitted into Pompey's theatre, where they might behold the vastness of the Roman people. There, at their leisure, for in the entertainment, ignorant as they were, they found no amusement, they asked questions about the crowd on the benches, about the distinctness of classes, who were the knights, where was the senate, till they observed some persons in foreign dress on the seats of the senators. Having asked who they were, when they were told that this honour was granted to envoys from those nations which were distinguished for their bravery and their friendship to Rome, they exclaimed that no men on earth surpassed the Germans in arms or in loyalty. Then they went down and took their seat among the senators. The spectators hailed the act good-naturedly, as due to the impulsiveness of a primitive people and to an honourable rivalry. Nero gave both of them the Roman franchise, and ordered the Frisi to withdraw from the territory in question. When they disdained obedience, some auxiliary cavalry, by a sudden attack, made it a necessity for them, capturing or slaughtering those who obstinately resisted. Of this same territory, the Ampsivari now possessed themselves, a tribe more powerful not only from their numbers, but from having the sympathy of the neighbouring peoples, as they had been expelled by the Chaussi and had to beg, as homeless outcasts, a secure exile. Their cause was pleaded by a man, famous among those nations and loyal to Rome, Biocallus by name, who reminded us that on the Cheruscan revolt he had been imprisoned by the order of Arminius, that afterward he had served under the leadership of Tiberius and Germanicus, and that to a fifty years' obedience he was adding the merit of subjecting his tribe to our dominion. 
"'What an extent of plain,' he would say, "'lies open into which the flocks and herds of the Roman soldiers may some day be sent. Let them by all means keep retreats for their cattle, while men are starving, only let them not prefer a waste and a solitude to friendly nations. Once these fields belonged to the Chamavi, then to the Tabantes, after them to the Usipi. As heaven is for the gods, so the earth has been given to mankind, and lands unoccupied are common to all. Then, looking up to the sun and invoking the other heavenly bodies, he asked them, as though standing in their presence, whether they wished to behold an empty soil, rather let them submerge it beneath the sea against the plunderers of the land. Avidus was impressed by this language, and said that people must submit to the rule of their betters, that the gods to whom they appealed had willed that the decision as to what should be given or taken from them was to rest with the Romans, who would allow none but themselves to be judges. This was his public answer to the Ampsavari. To Biocalus, his reply was that in remembrance of past friendship he would cede the lands in question. Biocalus spurned the offer as the price of treason, adding, We may lack a land to live in, we cannot lack one to die in. And so they parted with mutual exasperation. The Ampsavari now called on the Bructeri, the Tencteri, and yet more distant tribes to be their allies in war. Avitus, having written, to Cretilius Mancia, commander of the upper army, asking him to cross the Rhine and display his troops in the enemy's rear, himself led his legions into the territory of the Tencteri, and threatened them with extermination unless they disassociated themselves from the cause. When, upon this, the Tencteri stood aloof, the Brookteri were cowed by a like terror. And so, as the rest, too, were for averting perils which did not concern them, the Ampsivarian tribe, in its isolation, retreated to the Eusipi and Tubantes. Driven out of these countries, they sought refuge with the Chatti and then with the Cheruski, and after long wanderings, as destitute outcasts, received now as friends and now as foes, their entire youth were slain in a strange land, and all who could not fight were apportioned as booty. The same summer a great battle was fought between the Hermanduri and the Chatti, both forcibly claiming a river which produced salt in plenty, and bounded their territories. They had not only a passion for settling every question by arms, but also a deep-rooted superstition that such localities are specially near to heaven, and that mortal prayers are nowhere more attentively heard by the gods. It is, they think, through the bounty of divine power, that in that river and in those forests salt is produced, not, as in other countries, by the drying up of an overflow of the sea, but by the combination of two opposite elements, fire and water, when the latter had been poured over a burning pile of wood. The war was a success for the Hermanduri, and the more disastrous to the Chadi, because they had devoted, in the event of victory, the enemy's army to Mars and Mercury, a vow which consigns horses, men, everything indeed on the vanquished side to destruction. And so the hostile threat recoiled on themselves. Meanwhile, a state in alliance with us, that of the Ubi, suffered grievously from an unexpected calamity. Fires suddenly bursting from the earth seized everywhere on country houses, crops, and villages, and were rushing on to the very walls of the newly founded colony. Nor could they be extinguished by the fall of rain, or by river water, or by any other moisture, till some countrymen, in despair of a remedy and in fury at the disaster, flung stones from a distance, and then, approaching nearer, as the flames began to sink, tried to scare them away, 
like so many wild beasts, with the blows of clubs and other weapons. At last they stripped off their clothes and threw them on the fire, which they were the more likely to quench, the more they had been soiled by common use. That same year, the fact that the tree in the Comitium, which eight hundred and forty years before had sheltered the infancy of Romulus and Remus, was impaired by the decay of its boughs and by the withering of its stem, was accounted a portent, till it began to renew its life with fresh shoots. End of Book Thirteen